You're listening to the Midtown Church Sermon Podcast. Midtown Church is a family loved and served by God, compelled to love and serve each other and Austin with God. Learn more at midtownaustin.org. What a great morning. So glad that you've joined us today. It's so good to be with all of y'all as we celebrate baptisms and worship our awesome God and that in addition to all the good that's already happened, we are uh, kicking off a new sermon series this morning, and uh, I'm really excited about that as well. Uh, this morning's message is basically going to be an intro to this uh, new sermon series, because what I'm going to do today is I'm going to unpack one sentence that basically summarizes everything that Jesus ever taught, all right? Now, um, if you had the job of actually coming up with that sentence, <laughs> what do you think you would say? Right? One sentence that sums up everything Jesus ever taught, like that's kind of a, a heavy task. You might go with something like, you know, love God and love your neighbor. That, that would be probably a pretty, pretty good start. Or maybe the golden rule, do unto others as you could have them do unto you, perhaps. That, that might be a good summary. But uh, either way, it might fall, feel like you fall a little short, right? It's like it's kind of a, kind of a big task. Well, the good news is, uh, we don't have to figure it out. Uh, Jesus' disciple, Matthew, actually did the hard work for us. And he summed up everything that Jesus taught with the sentence that Mary started with when she was reading this passage this morning. It's found in Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. Matthew says, from that time on, Jesus began to preach. What did he begin to preach? What's the snapshot of the whole message summed up in one sentence? Here it is. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Now, my guess is that not many of us would have actually come up with that sentence if we were given the job of summing up everything Jesus came to, came to teach, right? Uh, most of us, or really I, perhaps none of us, would have come up with that sentence because we don't normally connect Jesus with the kingdom of God. Like, that's what he came preaching about, that that's what he came teaching about, that that's what he came talking about. Uh, we don't think about him teaching, teaching about the kingdom of heaven or kingdom of God, which are two phrases that he used interchangeably that can mean the same thing. But, but here's the thing. We should. <laughs> we should think about that because Jesus talked about the kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God all the time. In fact, in the, if you just read through the Gospel of Matthew looking for what Jesus is talking about, you're going to see that over 50 times in 28 chapters, he talks about the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. See, Matthew's summary of what Jesus began to preach was not arbitrary. It was really based on the thing that Jesus talked about the very most. And so in light of that, you think, okay, it's kind of weird, right? Like it's kind of... Uh, Silly that we don't think about the kingdom of God and Jesus being linked together. That when we think about Jesus and what he came to do and what he came to teach, we don't first go to the kingdom of God. Like, why is that? If it's very, really the thing that he talked about more than anything else, we should, we should actually stop thinking that way. We, we should make that connection, shouldn't we? Like, uh, it's silly not to. And so this morning, I want to help us Make that connection. I want to help us see why Jesus came preaching that the kingdom of heaven has come near. Why that was the thing that he talked about so often. 
Uh, and the reason why I want to help us understand that today is because, like I said, we are beginning a new sermon series. And it's a sermon series based on the most famous sermon that has ever been given in the history of, of man. It's the, uh, known as the Sermon on the Mount. And it was given by Jesus, and it's recorded in Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. And the Sermon on the Mount is basically Jesus' uh, manifesto, if you will, on what it means to live as a citizen of the kingdom of God or how to live in light of the kingdom that he came to bring. And so it's super important for us to understand. In fact, we're going to uh, spend 20 weeks in the Sermon on the Mount. And we're going to break that up a little bit over the, uh, along the way. But between now and the end of the spring semester, we're going to spend 20 weeks walking slowly through the Sermon on the Mount so that we can understand what it really means to live as a citizen of his kingdom. And that's a big deal for us as a church family because y'all know that we have a major prayer and a major big aim as a church, and that is summed up by the phrase, in Austin as it is in heaven. But specifically by that phrase, what we mean is that we are praying for God's kingdom to come and his will to be done in Austin as it is in heaven. But if we're going to aim for that and we're going to pray for that, then we should know what his kingdom is and what it looks like and what it means to live as a citizen of it, right? And so we're going to spend time in this, these three chapters, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, to hear from Jesus as he teaches what it is to be a citizen of his kingdom, what the kingdom of God is like. But... We're not going to get into that this morning, right? And I said this is kind of the intro to that sermon series because if we're going to get, and before we get into how to live as his kingdom, I think it's helpful for us to actually take some time to understand what is the kingdom of God or what's the significance of the kingdom of God. Because if you're like me, I mean, I spent most of my time, I grew up going to church and I, I was around the church for like all my, my dad's a pastor. Like I lived this all my life. And yet for a long, long, long time, I was just really cloudy when it comes to what is the kingdom of God? And why does Jesus talk about it so often? It's just, it just felt mysterious. It felt abstract. It just didn't have much meaning to me. Perhaps you can relate to that. But the Jews in Jesus' day, living in the first century, they weren't like that. See, when they heard the phrase, the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God has come near, that meant something to them. It meant something significant to them. When they heard that phrase, it brought to mind an entire storyline. Really, the storyline of the Hebrew Scriptures, their storyline. It brought to mind a storyline that was full of purpose and pain and hope. And so when they hear this, they, it meant something. But when we hear it, the kingdom of God, we're like, ah, I don't really know what that is. It's, it's like this, um, my favorite movie is Dumb and Dumber. And yes, and some of y'all that have great movie taste uh, are applauding right now, and some of y'all are judging me. But if you're judging me, I don't care, because I love that movie, and I'm unashamed about it. And one of the things that I've done, and it's really the only movie that I've really done to this degree, is I basically have memorized the entire movie. I, I saw it that many times whenever I was in high school. I just saw it all, all the time. And as a result, whenever someone says a word or a phrase that's in the movie, it triggers something for me and just comes 
The whole thing comes to my mind, right? And so like the other day, I took my daughter Della on a little date, and uh, we were at Hat Creek, and I got her a milkshake, and she likes the milkshake that has the gummy worms in it, you know, and that's weird, like gummy worms and milk, it just doesn't make any sense to me, but you know, that's whatever she wants. And so she gets, the, she gets the milkshake, and I think a part of why she likes it is because she always says, when she gets it, she goes, look, Dad, I got worms. And when she says that, I say, that's what we're going to call it. I've got worms, right? Because that's a line from Dumb and Dumber. That's the pet store that they were going to open at the beginning of the movie. Anyways, um, and when I say that, she says, I got worms. I say, that's what we're going to call it. And she just looks at me like, what? Because she hasn't seen the movie. And so the line just kind of goes over her head. It's no significance to her. But for some of y'all, when I said, that's what we're going to call it, y'all were like, yeah, that's from the movie. Because y'all got it. You're familiar with the story. And so that line means something to you. It's got some significance, some very humorous significance, hopefully, for you. Well, guys, that's what it was, it's like when it comes to this phrase, the kingdom of God. See, when... Jesus shows up, and he says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. That meant something to everyone in the first century who heard it. Because it brought to mind a storyline they were incredibly familiar with. In fact, that many of them, almost all of them, had memorized in their grade school the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament. And then they had grown up hearing about and learning and reading the Psalms and the stories and the poems of the prophets, like this was very familiar to them. Their minds were not melted on Netflix and Twitter. The only media that they had were the Hebrew scriptures, the Jewish scriptures. So like when Jesus says this, kingdom of God has come near, the kingdom of heaven has come near, it triggers something. It all comes flooding back. But when we hear that phrase, it just kind of goes over our head. We're like Della with the line from Dumb and Dumber because we're not familiar with the story. And so we don't see why it's so significant that this is what Jesus came to proclaim, to announce, and then to bring. And so this morning, what I want to do is spend our time familiarizing you with the story so that we can see why this statement is so significant. And the way I'm going to do that is I'm just going to walk us through some key moments in the story of the Hebrew Scriptures, or what we call the Old Testament. And um, I want to begin with the very first time that the idea of kingdom or reigning or ruling shows up in Scripture. Anyone have an idea when that was? Come on, anyone want to be bold? In the very beginning. Just say the beginning. It's the beginning of the story, Jake, and you'd be right because it's Genesis chapter 1, first book, first chapter. Genesis chapter 1 uh, is when God the, is, you know, is depicted as creating and revealed as, as creating everything. And this is, he's just this beautiful, powerful, creative God who brings order and beauty out of nothing. And then he creates humanity. And he creates us in his own image. And then he tells us that he did that for a very surprising purpose so that we would rule over his creation. In fact, this is the passage right here. Oh, famous passage. It says, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that, this purpose language, so that they may, what? Rule over. That's kingdom language. The fish in the sea, 
and the birds in the sky and over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. Now, this is chapter 1, first book of the Bible. God creates, he's the king, he makes it all, but then he says, okay, I'm creating humankind in my image to rule my, what my creation, to rule under me, to represent me and how they rule. Now, this is weird language, right? Because we don't think about us as ruling, not especially ruling over the birds of the air and over the animals and all that stuff. I mean, we, even many of us who have pets don't feel like we really rule our pets, even especially if you have cats, because cats are terrible, and they don't care about you at all, and they don't care about what you say. So just, just letting you know that. But, uh, so we don't feel like we rule, but uh, that's the language here. We, we do. We, we rule. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know. So, you think, okay, well, what's God mean whenever he says, okay, I'm, I'm making humanity so that they'll rule over? What's he talking about? Well, Dr. Uh, Tim Mackey, famous from the Gospel Project, some of y'all have seen those videos, they're so good. He has a message on this topic that I'm teaching on today, and it was incredibly helpful for me, and I just want to give him a lot of credit. And in that, he explains what this idea of ruling over creation really means. And let me just read his quote. I think I got it up here. Yeah, it says, This is God saying that he made mankind with the capacity to create and bring order. Where unlike other animals, we don't just inhabit this world of awesome potential and resources. We actually form it and organize it. We don't just live in a jungle, but we actually create a city. And this is very unique capacity of the human species that comes with great responsibility and a divine calling. We were created to be royal stewards of God's good world, ruling over it in a way that reflects and represents him. And that's how the Bible story begins. God, the ultimate king, creates humans in his image and gives them the responsibility of ruling the world on his behalf as his servant kings. And he gives us that capacity and that calling to use the world's raw potentials and to form it and organize it in directions that it wouldn't go on its own. But, friends, that calling and that capacity requires humanity to make decisions, like real decisions that have real consequences about what is good and what is not good, decisions about good and evil. And in chapter 3 of the story, humanity is faced with the decision whether or not they're going to let God be the one who defines what is good and what is evil. Or if they're going to decide that they know better and they're going to decide for themselves what is good and what is evil. And y'all know how the story goes, right? Humans go their own way. And in doing so, they create an alternate kingdom where they have seized autonomy. Now, let me explain why I'm using that kingdom language. Again, because it's Genesis 1, we were called to rule. But think about what a kingdom is. See, a a kingdom, to give you a very basic definition, is this. A kingdom is the space where the king's will is done. A kingdom is the space where the king's will is done. So if a king decrees something... It goes into, you know, it gets implemented wherever the boundaries of the kingdom are, right? 
So a kingdom is the space where the king's will is done. It's the area where the king's decrease, decrease something and it actually happens. But when humanity disobeyed God's stated will and instead acted according to their own will, they had by default created an alternative kingdom. A kingdom where they called the shots. See, this was a, a hostile takeover. And it was a hostile takeover by people uh, incapable of ruling well because they did not really understand what was good and what was evil. And so they started making decisions that had huge consequences. And it led to brokenness and to pain and to death and into everything that's wrong with this world. So you think, okay, well, what's God going to do about that? Because this is actually the major plot line of the entire Hebrew Scripture, the entire Bible. It's what's God going to do in light of mankind's hostile takeover, not representing his rule in the kingdom but going their own way and ruling on their own and creating this alternative kingdom. How is he going to respond? Well, here's what he does. He sets in motion a plan to reassert his kingdom and to set everything right. And the first way God does this is he begins to form a new people, a new community. And he begins with Abraham and with Sarah, and he tells them he's going to form from them a new people. And then God blesses Abraham and Sarah, and he tells Abraham that he will grow his family, and it will grow and grow and grow, and it will be a blessing to the entire world. And that begins to happen. The family does grow and grow and grow, but it eventually becomes enslaved to another kingdom. And it's the worst kingdom that is, uh, shows up in the Bible up to this point. And it's got the worst king that shows up in the Bible up to this point. See, the, the kingdom is the kingdom of Egypt, right? And the king is Pharaoh. And in the story, friends, Pharaoh is larger than life. That he represents everything that's wrong with the human kingdom. He's a power-hungry, murderous king. He's redefined good and evil to the point that killing babies and enslaving people are considered good instead of evil. So what does God do? Well, he acts. And he raises up a messenger and a deliverer named Moses. And God sends Moses to confront Pharaoh. And he tells Pharaoh, hey, you can't do this in God's world. And you can't be enslaving people. You need to let the people go. And Pharaoh says, look, I don't know you, and I don't know your God. But I call the shots here, so you can't tell me what to do. We're going to do what I want to do. And things get really, really intense from that moment on in this story. And it gets intense. Because what's happening is that you have a conflict, a war between two kingdoms. The kingdom of God and the kingdom of Pharaoh. Well, who wins uh, the conflict? God does, right? And uh, he does because Pharaoh had gotten so intoxicated by his own power and prestige that Pharaoh ends up making choices that destroys himself and his army and his family in his effort to win. And he and his army are crushed in the waters of the sea, and the Israelite slaves are liberated 
and freed. And friends, this brings us to the second key moment in the story of the Bible when it comes to the kingdom of God. Because in this moment uh, that the Jews are all uh, uh, released from slavery and they are set free, what you have is the very first time in Scripture when God is recognized and worshipped as king. And the Jews in Jesus' day, when they hear the kingdom of God has come near, the kingdom of heaven has come near, they would have thought of this moment. This would have been seared into their consciousness. Exodus chapter 15 is this pivotal moment in their story. See, in Exodus 15, it begins this way. It's the first worship song recorded in the Bible. And it says this, verse 1, I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. Both horse and driver he has hurled into the sea. And the Lord is my strength and my defense, and he has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, I will exalt him. And then you keep reading, and you come down to the very last line of this worship song, and it ends with that. For the Lord reigns forever and ever. For the Lord reigns as king. That's the idea of reigning. What does king do? What does a ruler do? He reigns. The Lord reigns forever and ever. Now, here's what I want you to think about. What causes the people to recognize that God is king? Like what's led up to them having this realization and worshiping and exalting him as the king who reigns forever and ever? Well, a couple of key things have happened. First is that God has formed an alternative people or a new people, right? And then God has confronted evil and its destructive effects in order to set his people free. In fact, I've got that up here. This is important for y'all to see that this is what happens when the kingdom of God comes near. He forms a new people, he confronts evil, and he brings freedom. And it's when the people of God, the Jews, see that this is what God has done, it's what moves them to worship him as their king. See, for this story reveals what it means for God's kingdom to come near. It means that the king is forming a new people and liberating and rescuing them from the kingdoms of this world by confronting with and dealing with evil. And friends, that's what the people in Jesus' day were longing for. They were longing for God to do that, for his kingdom to come near again. Because here's the thing. When God did this for the nation of Israel after freeing them from Egypt, his kingdom had come near. But it did not last for long. And it didn't last for long. Because the people of God did not stay loyal to God for long. You see, after God frees them from Egyptian slavery, he takes them to a mountain. And there at the mountain, he forms a covenant with them. And he, as their king, gives them the terms of the kingdom, if you will. And they're famous, right? You know, first, first 10 are really famous, and then there's like 603 more. And, uh, but the reason that he gives them the terms of the kingdom is because he's the king. And what, y'all remember the definition? What's, what is a kingdom? A, a kingdom is where the king's will is done. And so he's telling them, okay, here's what, how I will you to act. 
and in my kingdom, this is how to live. And he knows, that's all wise God, that this is the way to lead to flourishing. And it's also the way to help all the other nations to see what the real king, who the real king is and what the real kingdom is like. And so God has this good in store for his people. And he lays out the, the, these decrees and the people say, okay, king, yes, we will do that. And then they don't do that. And it doesn't take long before the people of God all decide to go their own way. And they no longer are loyal to the king. They're now calling the shots once again. They're redefining what it is, what good and evil is. And so the kingdom of God has not come near any longer. And God, after a while, judges his people and he sends them into captivity. And they're taken to Assyria, they're taken to Babylon, and uh, the people long for the kingdom of God to return. And you think, okay, well, what's God going to do now that he sent the people into, into Babylon, that they too weren't loyal to him as a king? Is he just going to be done with them? But no, that's not what he does. Because God, who is rich in mercy and love and kindness, Instead, he comes after his people by sending prophets to them with his word. And the prophets do a couple of things. They call the people to repent, to stop, to turn around, to recognize that they're not the king. That when they think that they're, kings, they're the king and they can call the shots, they're redefining good and evil in a way that's bringing brokenness and pain and despair and horrible stuff. And he says, no, no, repent. See that you're not the king. See that I'm the king and come back to me. That's part of the message of the prophets. But the other message of the prophets was a message of hope. It was a promise. It was a message that said, one day the kingdom of God will come near again. In fact, one of the most famous of those prophets, one of the passages or poems is found in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 52. And let me just read it for you because these are the promises of the people living in Jesus' day and age were clinging to and holding out hope for. See, in Isaiah 52, what you have is you have this little story of a night watchman on the walls of a city. And the city has been defiled and ransacked by its enemies. It's been destroyed. But you have this watchman still looking out, hoping for some good news. And he sees a messenger running toward the city. And here's how the poem begins. It says, How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace and who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, that's the city of Jerusalem. Here's what they say. Your God reigns. Listen, your watchmen lift up their voices. Together they shout for joy. When the Lord returns to Zion, then they will see it, they'll see it with their own eyes, and they'll burst into songs of joy together, you ruins of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. See, friends, that's the promise that one day God will return to Jerusalem and he will reassert his reign and joy will return. And if you're a Jew living in the first century, this was your hope. For you were keenly aware that this day had not yet come. For not only was God's people sent off to uh, exile or captivity to Babylon, but after that, other nations ruled them, including the nation that was ruling them in the first century, the nation of 
Rome. And so every time that you saw a Roman guard or you had to pay taxes to Caesar, you were reminded that God's kingdom had not come yet and that you were longing for that kingdom to come because you were a captive to the kingdom of the world. And so uh, with all of that in the background and with all that knowing that that's in the consciousness of the people and that this is what their hope was, Jesus shows up on the scene. And this is his message. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. And you better believe it, friends. The people started paying attention to that. And then, what does Jesus do? See, Matthew is extremely intentional about how he records what happens next after Jesus makes the announcement that the kingdom of heaven has come near. Because what's the very first thing we saw in the passage that Mary read for us? After saying that, he begins to form a new people, doesn't he? And he takes a walk around the lake, Sea of Galilee, and he starts finding people, and he says to them, hey, fishermen, come and follow me. And when you read that, like many of us are very familiar with this passage, but like if we just take a minute and step back and think about it, it feels very presumptuous of Jesus, doesn't it? Like he's just walking up to people and he's saying, like, leave everything. Leave your boat. Leave your job. And to, to James and John, he says, leave your dad. Like reorganize your life around me. Come with me. And we know that following Jesus, we've been talking about that a lot around here, right? That means something specific. It means to be with me. It means to become like me. It means to do what I'm doing. Jesus' call here is a strong invitation or even it reads a little bit like a summons. Like he's saying, hey, you fishermen. You're with me now. And you think, what is he doing? Well, friends, Matthew wants us to see that Jesus is the king. And that he has come not just to announce that the kingdom of God has come near, but he is the king who is bringing it near. And so he starts forming a new people, calling others to follow him. And then what does he do? Well, he does what kings do. He does what God does when the kingdom of God comes near. He not only starts forming a new people, but he begins to confront evil and its destructive effects in order to bring freedom. And that's what Matthew draws out next in this passage when he says in Matthew verse 23, chapter 4, verse 23, Jesus went throughout Galilee teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. And then here it is healing every disease and sickness among the people. And news about him spread all over Syria. And the people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases and those suffering severe pain and the demon-possessed and those having seizures and the paralyzed. And he, what? He healed them. He freed them. And what happened as a result? Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the, re and the region across the Jordan followed him. See, everyone follows him because they expect that he's going to do something really big next. And the reason that they expect that he's going to do something really big is because they begin to think that he might be, just be the king. 
and that he might really be bringing the kingdom of God. And so what they expect that he's going to do next is that he's going to free them from Roman rule. Now, let me make an observation for us. Friends, Jesus did not get crucified for telling people to love each other. Jesus did not get publicly executed by the Romans for being a great moral teacher even though that's how our world likes to see Jesus. That is not what happened. Jesus was crucified because he presented himself as being the king who was reasserting God's rule over the people of Israel and over the nations. That's why Jesus was crucified. And friends, that's why according to Matthew chapter 27, verse 29, They twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. And they put a staff in his right hand. And they knelt in front of him and they mocked him. Hail, King of the Jews. And friends, that's why he died on a cross with a sign above his head, with the written charge, this is Jesus, the King of the Jews. See, They understood what we so often miss. They understood that Jesus had come claiming he was the king and that he was bringing his kingdom. But they killed him for that. And they killed him for that because they misunderstood something that we also still misunderstand. And that is that Jesus isn't like the kings of this world and his kingdom is not like the kingdom's. Of this world. And so the people of his day expected him to liberate them from Roman rule, but Jesus didn't come to bring his kingdom by exerting power and control. He didn't come wielding an army or a knife. Jesus came to lay down his life so that by his service and his love, the ultimate evil of sin and death would be confronted and overcome, and all of the captives, Jews and Romans and you and me, can be set free. See, we're told that we can enter Jesus' kingdom, even now, through repentance and faith. When we believe that he, our king, died in our place for us, and then defeated death, and sin and through his resurrection. We're told that uh, if you trust that he is your king and he died for you and rose again, God, uh, this is the language, it's amazing. God literally transfers you into his kingdom. That's the language of Colossians chapter 1, 13 and 14 that says this. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son and whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And so we can enter his kingdom today through repentance and faith in him. But we all need to recognize this. That when we enter his kingdom, we're recognizing that he's the king. See, entering a kingdom means that you come under a new set of allegiances. And it's a commitment to grow in new loves and to submit to new guiding values of your life. 
In fact, friends, that's, that's what the whole Sermon on the Mount is about. And Matthew follows up chapter 4, Jesus' announcement that the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven has come near. He follows it up with three chapters of Jesus teaching about what it means to live under his reign as a citizen of his kingdom. And he has to teach us this because everything that it means to live under his reign and his kingdom feels upside down to us. And he says, you need to know that I'm not like other kings and my kingdom is not like other kingdoms. And so he gives this complete upending of his of our views on power and status and values and our views on what is good and what is evil. And like, I really can't wait to get into it. I'm really excited about the next 20 weeks as we walk through the Sermon on the Mount. For we're gonna, if we're going to see his kingdom come and his will be done in Austin as it is in heaven, then we better understand what it means to live as a citizen of his kingdom. And we better put it into practice. But we, friends, we won't do that if we don't first recognize that Jesus is the king. And so I, I want to wrap up this message with just this, this question, just to, for you, to leave it with you, that you would chew on this. The question is, is will you receive Jesus as your king? For you see, the, the, the same Jesus who called those fishermen by the lake, who walked right into their lives and invited them to follow him, that same Jesus extends the same invitation to you. And he calls you today to to radically reorganize your life around him. That he's your king and you're no longer the king. And that you would repent and you would stop thinking that you're the king. And you would see him for who he is. And you would say, okay, I'm going to do what you say. Because you're the king. And as a citizen of your kingdom, in my life, your will will be done. So that's what it means to be in the kingdom of God. Living as a... A, a place where God is actually bringing his kingdom to those around you. And so, will you receive Jesus as your king? To quote Richard Lovelace, he says, the most crucial battle for the kingdom is won every time a human being repents, believes, and submits to the lordship of the Messiah, becoming a new center for the reordering of life on earth as it is in heaven. Dear friends, we enter the kingdom simply through faith in Jesus, what he has done for us, but for us to live as a citizen of the kingdom. You live with Jesus as your king. And as you do, his kingdom comes on earth as it is in heaven. It doesn't come in full yet. It'll come in full when he returns he sets up his kingdom permanently to where on, on earth and all is set right. But he begins his work in your life. He can as you submit to him as your king. And so the question is, is will you? I really hope that you will. That you will repent. For the kingdom of heaven has come near. And it's awesome. Because Jesus is a great king. And life in him leads to abundant, eternal life. I want to give you a minute just to sit with this question. 
and then we're going to go into communion. But here's what I want you to think. Just talk about it with Jesus for a minute. Will you receive him as your king? Take a minute and just think on that. Thank you for listening to the Midtown Church Sermon Podcast. We hope this ministry has blessed you. If you would like to support this ministry, you can donate at midtownaustin.org.